0: through anger and grief and rage.
1: What we're talking about is called mindfulness meditation and people who do it believe that it makes their brains healthier and fitter.
2: We're about to cross the threshold into a new world. A Buddhist monk who's been called the happiest man in the world. If you ever wanted a complete scientific roadmap for how to live, a modern philosophy to go by, a lens through which to understand a complicated world, a foundation for life. Well, the 17th century Dutch philosopher Baruch de Spinoza is as good as you'll find. Today, you'll learn how to see yourself as something bigger, something infinite and awe-inspiring. How to see the world scientifically too, what this means for reducing negative emotions, leading a more content, fulfilled and rational and meaningful and joyful life. He asked questions like, why are we so dogmatic? What makes us so irrational? Why do we live as slaves to our emotions and other people's opinions? We'll find out why some of the most influential thinkers to have ever lived admired Spinoza so much. Einstein said if he believed in God, it was Spinoza's God and Hegel said that you are either a Spinozist or not a philosopher at all. We'll look at what made Spinoza one of the first truly modern and radical thinkers, why he was the first modern psychologist, and how he revolutionized how we think about concepts like God and nature. In short, and I think this is no exaggeration, the world we inhabit today would not be the same, would not have taken the path it has without Baruch Spinoza. This is also the story of a man, lost in the forest, searching for a way out.
1: Statues, portraits, even streets, bear his name. He has become an icon of reason and not a solitary thinker.
2: I don't want to dwell too much on Spinoza's life, except to say that he has a good claim on being one of the most consequential philosophers to have ever lived, but he was also, as Bertrand Russell wrote, the noblest and most lovable of the great philosophers. He was one of the first Enlightenment advocates for real democracy, and was the first to really criticise the Bible as just a text. He was vilified for his perceived atheism and excommunicated from the Jewish community where he lived, who said that, The Lord will not spare him. The anger and wrath of the Lord will rage against this man, and bring upon him all the curses. However, despite being ostracised from everyone, he searched his entire life for what he called the true good. He wanted to find out how to live an ideal and virtuous life. How, ultimately, to be free. Before we get to the juicy bits, we have to do the grunt work. We have to map out Spinoza's idea of the universe, then we can understand our place in it. It might sound a little bit complicated at first, but bear with me. If you get this, or at least just let it wash over you and stick with it, it will change how you think. Give me a few minutes to get through the complicated bits and then we'll get to the interesting stuff and it should all come together. If you could condense Spinoza's metaphysics, his first principles, into one sentence, it would be this. Being is one. Put another way, the many is one. What that means is actually quite simple. Everything. Us, the forest, animals, plants, stars, the laws of physics, are many things, that are part of one thing, nature. We forget this, of course. We think of ourselves as independent, as separate. But we also know that we're not, and we know this even more in the modern period. We know that we're made of atoms. We know that we need food, water, oxygen, energy from outside of us to sustain those atoms. We know that we rely on wood and tools and gravity and, of course, each other. We know about the circle of life, the interdependent ecosystem that the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom lives within, and we know that one thing affects another. In short, we know that everything is connected So how does he understand this many-things-in-one-nature truth? Well, he wants to lay it out logically and represent it in a kind of geometrical-mathematical pattern so that we can use it to build more complex ideas with. So instead of just saying many things and one nature, he says that there are three parts to the universe – substance, attributes, and modes we usually think of substances as the different things in the universe. Air, us, wood, deer, dirt, for example. It's just the stuff that things are made out of. Attributes, on the other hand, are the way we experience those substances. Spinoza says there are two that we know of, extension and thought. We have actual material trees, and then the idea of trees in our heads. A mode is the form or shape the substance takes. The substance wood, for example, could be in the mode of a tree, or a chair or a door. It's the substance of wood in different forms, shapes, modes. But wait. Spinoza wants to be more specific. A substance, he says, if it's to be defined properly, should be an independent thing. He provides definitions.
1: By substance, I understand what is in itself and is conceived through itself, i.e. that whose concept doesn't have to be formed out of the concept of something else. So let's take... A leaf. Is it a substance?
2: Well it's only a substance if it's in itself, if it's independent, if it's conceived through itself, if it doesn't have to be formed out of something else. But of course it does. It's dependent on the branch and the tree. So is the tree a substance? Well no because it's formed out of the soil, the air and the birds that disperse its seeds. A substance should be an independent thing, yet thinking through this thought experiment, everything is in some sense determined, dependent, an extension of things outside of it. So if we're defining substances strictly, it turns out there's only one. Nature. Trees, people, plants, animals, there, we're, all different modes, different shapes of nature, of matter. Spinoza saw nature as God. In fact, he usually wrote God or nature. They're one and the same thing. Why is this? Well, he thought of it like this. God is meant to be this infinite, all-powerful, omnipresent, omniscient lawmaker and lawgiver. But if that's the case, he can't be outside of nature. If he's not just part of nature, if he's not everywhere at once, he can't be omnipresent, he can't be infinite. He must, to be those things, be part of everything, with nothing inseparable from him, or her, or it. God couldn't be outside the universe, Spinoza realised. He was the universe. The ultimate laws were gravity, mathematics, the laws of physics, of cause and effect. So God, knowing all, seeing all, controlling all, had to not just be part of those laws, but actually be those laws, as if they were an extension of itself. Today, this is called pantheism. Spinoza was writing at the beginning of the Enlightenment and during the scientific revolution. He was trying, in some way, to square an old universe with a new one. One of science, of reason, of experimentation. He saw that all things, if you studied them carefully enough, were implicated and affected by everything else. Everything was clearly part of one big ordered ecosystem, although he didn't have that word ecosystem to use yet. It was a revolutionarily modern scientific view.
1: Spinoza writes, In nature, there is nothing contingent. All things have been caused by the necessity of the divine nature to exist and produce and effect in a certain way.
2: A storm pushes me one way, the wind pushes my boat. Berries draw me towards eating them. The tree grows depending on the rain and the sun. The deer is frightened in a different direction when startled. We all have desires we can't control. We are all like billiard balls, set off by causes outside of us. Spinoza's universe is a description of a singular, timeless fact. Everything is connected. Being is one. To understand ourselves, we must understand the natural world we are a part of.
0: You know when you come right down to it, there are only two views we can take. Either this all happened by accident, or it's the result of design and plan. You might just shrug your shoulders and say, well, it's just a matter of personal opinion and let it go at that. You might, that is, but for the fact that this is an issue which vitally affects your whole life. It's going to determine how you think and how you live.
2: There's a phrase that comes up often in scholars' discussions about Spinoza's universe. It unfolds. Cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect. This is the root of everything. A seed unfolds into a tree. A pang of hunger unfolds into the making of a meal. The desire for sex unfolds into a new human life. This path unfolds through the woods. And the cloud unfolds into the sky. The universe, since the Big Bang, has unfolded into
1: an infinity of different shapes and modes. I shall consider human actions and appetites as if it were a question of lines, planes, and bodies.
2: What does this mean? That we can conceptualize, trace, and map lines through our appetites, actions, and ideas. They're caused by something before them And they, in turn, were caused by something before that. And the effects of those causes go on into the future.
1: Spinoza writes, The infant thinks that he freely wants the milk, the angry child that he freely wants vengeance, and the timid one that he freely wants to flee. The drunkard thinks it is from a free decision of the mind that he says things which when he sobers up he regrets having said
2: this forces us to confront a frightening proposition, are we free at all? Spinoza says that all the evidence points to no.
1: In the mind, there is no absolute or free will, but the mind is determined to will this or that by a cause which is also determined by another, and this again by another, and so too infinity.
2: We only think we're free because our consciousness sits between one of those causes and effects. Between, for example, the pang of hunger and the decision to eat. But we see the effect of something, like hunger or desire, and then see that effect as a volition, a choice, a voluntary action. Let me explain. I just heard a lion, over there, in the English countryside, so I decide to go this way. Am I choosing freely when moving my leg this way was caused by the effect of the lion's roar? Everything is cause and effect, however, we rarely reflect on the long line of causation that came before. All action is caused by something external. Just because we watch over our own appetites, ideas, and actions as they enter and leave our minds, we think that we're free. The French philosopher Gilles Deleuze wrote that consciousness is only a dream with one's eyes open. Consciousness, in other words, is being sat over the
1: top of the waterfall, watching mental stuff fly over it. Spinoza writes, A body in motion moves until another body causes it to rest, and a body at rest remains at rest until another body causes it to move.
2: Now, here's the interesting bit. How things, modes, objects, us, ideas, whatever it is, are affected by other things depends on the natures of each thing. The bird affects the tree in a different way than the rain does. An idea or a sentence affects two different people in two different ways. Everything affects everything else in some specific way. What's the scientifically-minded approach to this? To understand how things affect other things. That's the key to the universe.
1: It is clear that we are driven about in many ways by external causes and that, like waves on the sea, Driven by contrary winds, we toss about, not knowing our outcome and fate.
2: He says that we have inadequate ideas about the effects of things. The trick to life, of course, is to have adequate ideas.
3: The way we make decisions in our democratic system has a profound effect on our welfare and happiness. Whether we're dealing with a personal problem or a business matter, whether we are deciding on our schools, our taxes, or any other community problem, the first thing we have to do is get the facts.
2: Okay, imagine for one moment those lines of cause and effect running through the universe. Deleuze calls those lines the plane of imminence. The bird is something to the tree, the tree to the soil, the soil to the worm, and so on the line to the person running. There is a line that can be drawn from my first videos, to the writing of this one, to me being in this forest, and that line continues into the future. When we think in terms of lines, we realise that everything in the universe is relative to something else – all is a web. This, again, has radical consequences that should change how we think. It means that nothing is good or bad in itself, but only relative to something else. The lion is bad for me, so I run from it. The berry is good for me, so I'm drawn to it. We tend to think of things as good or bad, beautiful or ugly, true or not true. We attach properties to objects and think of them as being certain things. This is red, it's tasty, or it's poisonous, or that person is cheerful, intelligent or interesting, or that argument is a good or bad idea. But we forget that it's always us that's attaching the property – the goodness or badness, the ugly or beautiful, the wise or unwise – so that these appraisals of objects, ideas, or people aren't actually properties that are in the thing itself, but are descriptions of a relationship. Everything is relative, and the consequences of thinking like this get even more radical. If things can't be defined by properties in themselves, but only by relations between things, then they must be understood only in their capacities to do things to other things, or the capacity to have things done to them by other things. This is what Spinoza calls simply their
1: capacity to affect and be affected.
2: Oh look, a giraffe in the English countryside. Why does it have a long neck? The reason is not within the giraffe itself, a property of the giraffe, but in its relationship to eating from trees, or drinking water, or fighting with other giraffes. This applies to everything. Deleuze writes that beings will be defined by their capacity for being affected by the affections of which they are capable, the excitations to which they react, those by which they are unaffected, and those which exceed their capacity and make them ill or cause them to die. Okay, now things are getting interesting. If everything is about relationships, capacities to affect or to be affected, cause and effect, then how should we think about our relationship to the things around us? What do we want to surround ourselves with? What do we want to avoid? The answer is quite simple. We should want to surround ourselves with perfection. We should try and organise our experience of the world so that we encounter things that will affect us positively the things we call good, the things that our relationship with affect us positively, we of course like, we approve of, we want more of. A good shelter has the effect of sheltering us from the rain, great start. This is why Spinoza sees goodness and perfection as synonymous. But more than this, he says that by perfection and goodness he just means existing. What does this mean? Well, a house that exists for a longer period is more perfect than the one destroyed in a storm. A person that lives longer has a body that's more perfect than one that dies from a disease. A plant that gives us more energy is more perfect to us than one that doesn't. God, or nature, is more perfect because it exists for a longer period of time than an individual tree or a single animal. Things generally want to exist for as long as possible, so whatever helps that thing achieve that is more perfect in its relationship with it than something that doesn't. Spinoza says simply,
1: Whatever helps us attain that perfection, we shall call good and whatever hinders our attaining it, or does not assist it, we shall call evil.
2: And we try to arrange our ideas of the world in this way as well, in such a way as to achieve this perfection. He says,
1: After men began to form universal ideas and devise models of houses, buildings, towers, etc., and to prefer some models of things to others, it came about that each one called perfect what he saw agreed with the universal idea he had formed of this kind of thing.
0: I think of fire in connection with emotions because when you become stirred up, when your emotions control your actions, it affects not only yourself, but the people around you. Psychologists find that control of emotions can be gained By understanding the stimulus response pattern.
2: Okay, so lines of cause and effect run through everything, and everything has different capacities to be affected by and affect other things. Let's think about those affections. Look, a gorilla in the English countryside. I hear the gorilla. I see the gorilla, I feel fear, the gorilla's capacity to beat me in an arm wrestle affects me and I'm pushed, I'm affected, into running. Spinoza says that,
1: Unpleasure is a man's passing from a greater perfection to a lesser.
2: Now again. This applies to everything. Our sad, angry, fearful, hungry, annoyed, stressed, anxious, frustrated feelings about things are signals that something is affecting us in a negative way, that we're passing into a lesser state of perfection. Think about hunger. You're literally decomposing. So the hunger pushes you to eat for sustenance. Stress is based on the fear that I don't know, if you don't finish this task, you'll be judged poorly by
1: others and it will hurt your career."
2: On the other hand, he says,
1: Pleasure is a man's passing from a lesser perfection to a greater.
2: Like the term unfolding for the universe and lines for cause and effect, our emotions and feelings are signals of a potential passage to a better or worse condition, a reaction to objects we encounter in the world. Spinoza calls feelings, emotions and passions the affects because they affect us. He thinks that all affects boil down to three main ones, from which all the others derive. Joy, sadness and Desire. And they're all related to Spinoza's idea of perfection. Joy is the experience of our condition being improved, sadness, our condition worsening. Anger, fear, hunger, feeling cold are all sad effects, sad passions, he calls them. Whereas love or confidence are examples of the joyful effects. But remember, everything is relative. The affects are always about something, in that line of cause and effect. So he says that,
1: A full account of the nature of each passion must bring in the nature of the external object by which the person having the passion is affected.
2: Again, it's the relationship we have to focus on. We try to organize our lives rationally around how often we'll encounter, use, or avoid certain things. We want the shelter for more warmth and less rain. We want the good ideas about raising our children or choosing new hobbies. We want to avoid the things that make us sick. So how does this relate to Spinoza's big idea, the thing he spent his entire life trying to discover, finding what he called the true good of being free?
3: The next step is to consider different opinions based on the facts. And the final step is to weigh the facts and opinions with understanding and objectivity. These standards apply to everyone. Whether it's a family planning where to take a vacation, or a group of students discussing a school project, or a women's club planning a charity drive, or a city council debating a community problem, All of them have to have the facts before they are able to reach intelligent decisions.
2: Okay, so we're affected by things. We want to be affected by good things. We want to become more perfect in Spinoza's words. Everything's a relationship too. How do we begin to bring all of this together? First, Spinoza is an ethical egoist. That means that essentially what is Good and bad for us individually guides us in what we do, how we think and act. He said that reason
1: Demands that everyone love himself, seek his own advantage, and absolutely, that everyone should strive to preserve his own being as far as he can.
2: He called this an organism's conatus, which he defines in various ways at various times as an organism's striving, endeavour, tendency, force, and power of acting. It applies to the tree as much as it does to us. Every organism strives to increase its conatus, to exist for longer, to achieve a better state of perfection. He says
1: simply that Each thing, as far as it can by its own power, tries to stay in existence,
2: Because of our conatus,
1: we have a desire
2: for things that increase our well-being – food, sex, love, shelter, good ideas, and an aversion to those things that decrease it – poison, violence, lions, gorillas. But how does our conatus guide us in doing this? What are we doing? Of course, we have those natural urges, and some things are of course better for us and others not. But as usual with Spinoza, he takes the insights one step further. In knowing that the lion is bad for us and the berry good, we're doing something else too. We're understanding those lines, the affections, the causes and effects in the world. The conatus needs to understand, to comprehend so as to increase its power of doing the right thing to live longer. This is why Spinoza is a rationalist. Understanding is the key to everything. Understanding is the key to freedom. How can Spinoza argue that we're all pushed around by affections out of our control and argue that we can be free? Remember, he says it's clear that we are driven about in many ways by external causes and that, like waves on the sea, driven by contrary winds, we toss about, not knowing our outcome and fate. It's that tossing about that he wants to address. The affects, passions and emotions are passive, they happen to us. Like the wind hitting a sail, a wave crashing over a ship, I see cake and my mouth salivates and I eat it. I feel like an idea is a good one, so I do it. I think the sound is bad, so I run. But often our ideas are mistaken about whether those affects are really helping us. What we want to do is understand the real causes and effects of what we do. We want to know what really caused that sound in the woods before we run. If it's really harmful and where we're going. If that cake is really what I want to improve my condition. If that idea is really accurate. Spinoza says that just relying on feelings and affects is basically a state of slavery, because we're pushed around by them, not understanding and choosing for ourselves. Instead of being passive, we want to be active.
1: The difference between a man who is led only by an affect or by opinion, and one who is led by reason. For the former, whether he will or no, does those things he is most ignorant of, whereas the latter complies with no one's wishes but his own, and only does those things he knows to be the most important in life, and therefore desires very greatly. Hence I call the former a slave, but the latter a free man.
2: Okay, so what does being active actually entail? Someone who is active is guided by their conatus, their desire for longevity, for joy and perfection. And they should be what Spinoza calls the adequate or sufficient cause of what they're doing. To do this, we use our reason to study the causes and effects of those relationships between things around us. We want to understand those affects on us and the effect they might have in turn on things in the future. Adequate ideas are clear and distinct knowledge about what increases a person's conitus, because a person has studied the causes and effects of things around them. Okay, an example. Inadequate knowledge is eating because you desire to, because you're hungry. It might have a good effect, it might not. This berry might actually poison me. Adequate knowledge, however, is eating in a rational way. Knowing the nutrients, where it grows, what goes into it, and the effect it has on you in the long term, how much it contributes to your health, all the factors, all the causes and effects. That's why I have my foraging guide don't know why I'm throwing my cowberry away. I wonder, is that actually a cowberry? Cowberry, can you see? Description, also known as the lingonberry. This is a small evergreen. Cowberries are acidic, but can be eaten raw. They're best used to make an excellent jelly, commonly added to jams, pies, and fruit sweets. Spinoza writes that
1: when a rational being is truly active and so far as he is moved by the knowledge he possesses, the things he does are guided by a true understanding of what is in his own best interest and thus bring about an improvement in his condition.
2: In other words, the free, active, reasonable person is driven by self-determination. Being active and reasonable requires thinking through the causes and effects of things sufficiently enough to be able to overcome our simple passions and emotions. In knowing that I'm hungry, or that I can store them, and that the berry contributes to my vitamin C intake, I've done the research, I know how much I need, I know where to find them, and then I'm acting, picking, eating, storing in an active way, not a passive way. An adequate idea of what to do takes into account all the factors, and if we do this, he says, reason will overcome the weaker impulses or misguided ideas. Deleuze writes that once we have attained adequate ideas, we connect effects to their true causes, and consciousness having become a reflection of adequate ideas, is capable of overcoming its illusions, forming clear and distinct ideas of the affections and effects it experiences. Spinoza scholar Stephen Nadler gives the example of the choice between staying at home and studying or going out partying with friends. In the moment, going out might have a stronger effect on your desire. But if we consider all the factors about our finances or the job we might get from the effect of staying in studying, we might come to the conclusion that it's more rational to stay in and study. Alternatively, we might still decide we need a night off because we're overworked. Spinoza is not saying that one thing is better than the other, only that we have to consider our options. We have to really understand the effects of our choices. We have to use our heads. Nadler writes that a person is therefore free when his adequate ideas are more powerful, effectively speaking, than his passions or inadequate ideas. For Spinoza, freedom is about reason, and someone who is free is someone who acts according to the dictate of reason.
1: He says that. The only thing that reason makes us try to get is understanding.
0: We're going to explore several different realms of God's creation. Before we're finished, I think you'll agree that our God is a wonderful God.
2: Spinoza spends a lot of time in the ethics commenting on virtue, vice, emotion, and feeling and trying to understand their relationship to reason. He is a rationalist after all. He wants to make the case that using our reason will direct us without error along the correct path. A vice, for example, is...
1: An immoderate love or desire for eating, drinking, sexual union, wealth, and esteem.
2: This might bring pleasure in the short term, but they're harmful over a longer period. Fortitude, for Spinoza, is a virtue above all others. He says,
1: From the guidance of reason, we want a greater future good in preference to a lesser present one, and a lesser present evil in preference to a greater future one.
2: Fortitude is the act of working hard, looking forward, Thinking broadly, investing our time in understanding how the world works so that we can reap future rewards. But here's the beautiful bit everything in Spinoza connects in some way. Remember how, for Spinoza, God is nature, God is in everything, God is perfect because nature just is. It's that unfolding line of cause and effect that runs through everything. It's the fact that the many are one. All is one substance. Well, he says to overcome acting passively and to choose the rational thing, to live with fortitude, we must look to God, to nature, to see what lasts, what works, what's most perfect and most beautiful to increase our own conatus as a species in a relationship with the rest of nature. He wants to look from what he describes as the perspective of eternity.
0: God offers to create in us a new life, a life of peace instead of turmoil, a life of victory instead of sin and defeat, the and life of eternal glory instead of eternal suffering. And he's great enough to do the job
2: Think about how people give up smoking when they have kids, or maybe get more humble and tolerant from travelling the world. The wider the view, the more long-term orientated you become, the more things you consider, you look at causes over the perspective of a longer period of time, across a broader space looking to eternity is the most godly way of thinking, looking at everything from a god's eye view, from the perspective of eternity, at what causes things, what affects things over the long
1: term. He says, perfecting the intellect is nothing but understanding god, his attributes, and his actions, which follow from the necessity of his nature.
2: To take one more example, think about growing a plant to eat. We learn from God, from nature, by watching, by experiencing, by seeing what happens when it rains, what soil it grows best in, which nutrients and how much sunlight it needs. Or in building a house, say, we look for the strongest wood that's the best insulator and lasts the longest, is the most eco-friendly. Spinoza says simply that everything in life works in the same way. Uh, Uses young petals have a fragrant aroma, true, and are worth harvesting and use if you have the patience. Uh, once enough petals have been gathered, use them to make a light panna cotta, swirl them into a sweet cake, or infuse them with a little chilli
1: in home-brewed mead. He says he who understands himself and his affects clearly and distinctly loves god and does so the more the more he understands himself and his affects
2: spinoza says a few things about the free person's character and talks at length about different virtues emotions and vices but Fundamentally, the person led by reason, and guided by understanding nature, will have two things. Strength of character, that's the fortitude, the striving, the will to understand the world. And they'll be active, choosing by reason, not passive, pushed around by the affections, Spinoza was influenced by the Stoics of ancient Greece and Rome. Instead of relying on capricious and unpredictable joys like sensual pleasure and fears or anger, ultimate freedom, he says, is grounded in reason. and From this comes a joyful serenity that arises from the knowledge that doing the rational correct thing should pay off in the end. Joy, remember, is the feeling of an increase in our conatus, an increase in power. So Spinoza's ethics is grounded in increasing an active, in control, rational joy. But because we're part of the universe, we'll also take joy in seeing the affections and relationships of the world for what they are, being integral to it, a thing within it. He says...
1: A person who sees the necessity of things regards their passage with calm and composure.
2: Getting frustrated and angry at the universe is the result of seeing the world through the lens of inadequate ideas. Imagine getting angry with the lion, blaming the lion for wanting to eat you. You know it's not the lion's choice, not her fault. She's not morally responsible. Spinoza just says that we should look at the rest of the world in this way too. Seeing from the perspective of eternity means looking at how different affections, different causes and effects affect things with different levels of power. So the power of the lion biting your leg has its cause in the lion's hunger. We don't get angry, upset or frustrated with the lion personally. Now imagine asking someone for directions in the street and the person ignores us. We get a little frustrated, but then we discover that the person speaks a different language, or is deaf, or is scared of us because they were harassed on the street last week. There are causes we didn't consider and have a powerful affect on the person, And when we look from the perspective of eternity, it becomes difficult for us to direct our negative emotions at single people, ideas, or objects. It becomes unreasonable. Spinoza says,
1: If we separate an emotion affect from the thought of an external cause and join it to the other thoughts, then the love or hate toward the external cause is destroyed as is the mental instability arising from these affects.
2: Powerfully, we should think of all of the causes of things, again, giving us a God's eye view, but also lessening the blame or negative emotion we feel towards one isolated thing or one isolated person. As Steven Nadler writes, This view serves to distribute the causal responsibility for the effect widely and dilute its power significantly, perhaps taking away its strength altogether. The intensity of the effect is weakened as it becomes less focused on one particular individual and more on a long sequence of necessitating causes. The same applies to our own negative emotions, our own problems. We must have knowledge about their causes and effects, otherwise we become slaves to them. Because ultimately, we want to increase the joyful effects and decrease the negative ones. He
1: says, So someone who was led solely by his love of freedom to moderate his affects and appetites will try his hardest to come to know the virtues and their causes, and to fill his mind with the joy that comes from the true knowledge of them, He will not think about men's vices, or disparage men, or take pleasure from putting up a show of being a free man. If you observe these carefully, they aren't difficult, and regularly put them into practice, you will soon be able to direct most of your actions according to the command of reason."
2: If you follow his advice, Spinoza says, you'll find your way out from the confusion of the forest of affects. You'll be able to see the wood through the trees. You'll see the bigger picture, the one from eternity, the God's eye view. You'll have perspective. And Spinoza's ethics have been applied to many areas and have only just scratched the surface here, but it boils down really to this. Reflect on the causes of things. But, you might be wondering, what has any of this got to do with morality? His most famous work is called The Ethics, after all. Spinoza's picture of the world seems to be quite self-centred. So before we end, I want to touch on what Spinoza says about community, morality and benevolence. For Spinoza, morals can only be grounded in the simple fact that every organism and being wants to increase their own conatus. Spinoza's morality, or benevolence, is based on the idea that it's rationally wise to surround oneself with other people who are also rational, as rational people, he says, will want the same things as one another.
1: He says that there is nothing more useful to a man than a man. Men, I repeat, can wish for nothing more helpful to their staying in existence than that all men should be in such harmony that the minds and bodies of them all would be like one mind and one body, that all together should try as hard as they can to stay in existence and that all together should seek for themselves the common advantage of all
2: the opposite of a joy grounded in understanding and an increase in are a life lived under the influence of the sad passions, so it's only logical to want to minimize negativity. We assemble the world rationally in order to avoid the sad passions. We put the effects of different things together and create assemblages of medicines, technologies, norms and values, entertainment, information, family and friends. As a species, we have common ideas. He says,
1: The body has been affected, most forcefully, but what is common to all men.
2: We all want to preserve the things that are good for our nature, and many of those things are common to us all. And if we're arguing, angry, suspicious and fearful, rather than joyful, calm and rational, we're increasing our sad passions, and that shouldn't be anyone's foundational goal. Moreover, two heads are better than one when it comes to tasks, and the rational person should always want to convince the other to come over to their cause, to be rational too take the example of trying to work out how to grow this bush, this tree, these flowers. The more people working on the problem with the same goal, the better it will be. Scholars have been critical of Spinoza's view here. People have different goals, different values. But I think his point is that we should come together positively and ground any disagreement or debate or competition in those joyful effects, rather than the sad passions, the negative ones. I'm not going to summarise. It's impossible to. I'll leave you with the last few lines of the ethics. The road to these things that I have pointed out now seems very hard, but it can be found. And of course, something that is found so rarely is bound to be hard, For if salvation were ready to hand and could be found without great effort, how could it come about that almost everyone neglects it? But excellence is as difficult as it is rare. Thank you so much everyone for watching this video. I really, really enjoyed making this one. And a huge thank you to Epoch Philosophy for lending their voice for the Spinoza quotes. You can check out their great channel through the link below. Uh, There's a video on Deleuze and Spinoza. You should watch if you liked this one. So thank you to them. And most of all, as always, thank you to my patrons, all these incredible people who let me ramble through the woods and ramble on about philosophy. It's my favourite thing to do. Uh, if you'd like to join them, get your name in the credits and access the Discord server and get scripts, then you can do so through the link below for as little as a dollar. Uh, please do that if you can. If not, hit like. Leave a comment for engagement, follow me on Twitter, all the rest of it. It really helps me out,
1: and I'll see you next time.